Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. The past decades have seen a steady erosion of Democratic support from what used to be core voters, blue-collar workers in factory towns. There are many reasons for this, and to explain what's happened and how to fix it, I've invited Mike Lux, founder of American Family Voices, on to discuss. Mike is a writer and thought leader, and as the co-founder of Democracy Partners, one of the most influential voices in progressive politics in the United States. I went to factory towns and I wanted to hear what people had to say. There was someone, Fred, who came up with a binder, 80 years old, of 40 plants that had closed in the last 40 years. Guess what they talked about? It wasn't really abortion rights. It was certainly not threats to democracy. It was the economy and inflation, how to make the economy work for working class families, of which there are many here in this county. A bombshell on Capitol Hill. The Flint mother at the heart of the water crisis testifying that the state of Michigan tried to silence an EPA whistleblower. Today's announcement by Whirlpool that it's closing a plant in Arkansas and eliminating 5,000 jobs was eerily familiar news for the people of Evansville, Indiana. I'm Mike Lux, and I am passionately fighting for Democrats to reforge the bond that they once had with working class America trying to make that bond real again. That's my passion. Sorry, not sorry. Mike, thank you so much for being here. I really want to talk about American Family Voices and the report of Factory Towns. But before we get there, will you just tell my listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? My name is Mike Lux, and I have been a longtime political person. I grew up in the Midwest in a neighborhood where the high school was about three blocks from the biggest factory in town. And I moved to Iowa in the early 80s and was part of the labor movement in Iowa, the labor organizer there, political organizer. And at some point when you're in Iowa, you run into presidential campaign staff. So I ended up signing on to some presidential campaigns. And that brought me to Washington when Clinton won. And I worked in the Clinton White House for a few years. 
and stayed in Washington and have been doing consulting and have been a writer, written a couple of books and started one of the first political blogs in the country and just stayed active in politics in a lot of different ways. That was all exhausting. I don't know how you're still doing it with such passion. Our circles overlapped in the advocacy space. Our side is good at really caring so much that we go to war with each other when we're all fighting for the same thing. I'm really interested in the Factory Towns project and what it's working to achieve, because I think quite often what I hear about my activism in particular is, how do you know what we struggle with? And the truth of the matter is, of course, anyone's lived experience, I can't understand. But I do try to make it my mission to travel all over the country and hear from different people. And this idea of these lost cities these cities that not only we've abandoned, but also decided that they're not worth rebuilding is something that I think is one of the greatest American tragedies. So tell us about the Factory Towns Project and what it's working to achieve. The idea of Factory Towns is, as you say, it's focused on communities, small to mid-sized towns and counties outside of the big metro areas. So in Ohio, say, rather than being focused on Cleveland and Columbus, we're focused on Youngstown, Akron, Dayton, Warren, places like that. Rather than being focused in Michigan on Detroit, we're focused on Flint, you know, and so on down the line. And the idea is these are the towns that used to be the industrial heartland of America, where most of American products were made, and they have been hit harder than anybody else by deindustrialization, the offshoring of factories, the offshoring of work. They've been harder hit than any other demographic, than any other region, by the opioid epidemic. I mean, in Ottumwa, Iowa, just to give you one example, which used to be a very strong union town, a very strong democratic town. Most of its workforce was in factories. The factories started to close down. And I don't know if it's still true, but for several years, at least recently, the number one employer in town was actually a meth lab. So that it's scary. And these places have been hit with higher suicide rates, with higher mental health issues. When the financial crisis hit and Wall Street, of course, came out of it fine, but it was towns like this that were devastated. And these voters, if you look at their attitudes, they still have feelings about old time democratic causes, but they feel abandoned. They feel cynical about politics. And so it's very hard to get through to them. And it's very easy for Republicans and frankly, right-wing nationalists to get into these folks' uh, heads. And so we've seen that these places used to be hardcore Democratic, and we've seen them slipping away from us over the years. In Northeastern Iowa, Democrats know their brand is in trouble. A cluster of Mississippi River counties mirroring the toxic national environment for Democrats in rural America. In 1992, Democrats won 51% of the rural vote. By 2016, that number was just 35%. It really started to accelerate after 2012. In 2012, at least the mid-sized towns in this category actually went for Obama by a net of about 100,000 votes. We studied the Pennsylvania and the Midwest, not just the battleground states, but the entire region. And we want to go next into North Carolina and some southern and western states. But in our initial study was Midwest and Pennsylvania. 
And places that used to be 80% Democratic have been have started going to Trump and to Republicans. These voters have started to slip away after the trade deals of the 90s, which they, even though the Republicans all voted for him, they totally blamed Clinton for. But it's really started to accelerate after the Obama election in 2012, to the point where a lot of these counties that used to be so Democratic have now gone for Trump twice in the last two presidentials. Let's unpack that because I think it's important to, and we can use maybe Flint as an example. So what everybody thinks about Flint is that Flint was okay until the water crisis, which is simply not true because Flint was a city that prospered because of the factories, the auto industry. Those factories closed in roughly 1997. 90% of people who lived in Flint worked at the factories. So some of them didn't feel like they needed to graduate high school or further their education because they were going to just work in the factories. Those jobs in those days were pretty stable jobs and decent benefits, decent retirement plans. Absolutely. You could raise a family on a job like that. Then what happens, and this is what, you know, we're seeing is because of these lack of businesses, obviously these towns have less money to rebuild infrastructure or to look at infrastructure at all. We have corrupt politicians who basically decided to flip a switch. And then we have the Flint water crisis in 2015. We cannot ignore that these two things are directly related to each other. Factories close. There's no money going into Flint, no money coming out of Flint. They flip a switch and the water becomes off-gassed with horrible chemicals and lead. That is not unique to Flint, is it? Not at all. We see those kinds of patterns in town after town around the country and in that region. And by the way, there's a lot of water systems that have traces or sometimes more than traces of lead. There's a lot of water systems that have traces of other chemicals, as you were talking about. The infrastructure thing is such an important thing in people's daily lives. It's a huge issue. We're just continuing to make people sick in this country by not addressing the issue. I want to take a step back in history. I want to look at factory towns and really the voters, the union voters that filled them. They were, like you said, core Democratic constituencies. The New Deal and the economic policies that followed and the economic boom of the Second World War saw a lot of prosperity in these areas. And yet many of these towns are now considered battlegrounds or even GOP voters now. Let's take my listeners through what happened. Why are people voting for the GOP now? Is it simply because they feel abandoned and ignored by the Democratic Party or is there more to it? So I think there's three different things going on at the same time. One is that there is a large group of swing voters who had been voting for Democrats for most of their lives, but who feel, for the reasons we were just talking about, who feel abandoned, who feel like Democrats make promises but didn't deliver for them. 
NAFTA, has resulted in the exploitation of the Mexican worker, the loss of jobs here in this country, and the only ones who have benefited, quite frankly, are these multinational corporations which are engaged in this exploitation. And that's a pretty significant chunk of the reason that the vote has moved away from us. It's probably about 50 to 60 percent of the reason that these counties have shifted. There's a second category, which is folks who used to vote Democrat all the time probably still would if they voted. But they're so discouraged. Their lives are so hard and they're trying to figure out how to make it paycheck by paycheck, even if they have a job. They're trying to figure out how to pay their health care costs. They're worried about a lot of these voters are in their 50s. They're worried about what happens when they retirement because they have no retirement savings. They lost their pension years ago. And so they're just too discouraged, right, to get out and vote. And because they didn't see the impact on their lives with democratic policies, they feel like, well, why bother to go vote at all? And then there's a third category, which is there are some voters in these counties who are instinctively, they get drawn into white nationalism. Uh, they get drawn into the pernicious, terrible stuff that the Republicans push. And so there was a surge of Republican voters in a lot of these counties. Well, because the GOP told these union workers that, for instance, immigrants were taking their jobs. That's right. So a lot of voters said, OK, I have to be anti-immigration then. Who's the party that represents that? And so I think we have to always look at, and I don't know how we change it systemically, but we have to look at the fact that somehow the GOP continues to be a step ahead and continues to prey on people's fears. Yeah, their disinformation system is stunning, and they work the angles every which way. They take any quote, any half-assed fact, and spin it into this craziness, and sometimes they just plain lie. A lot of disinformation just isn't based on anything. It's just pure BS. So that's the piece of it, too, is that disinformation loop that is so powerful online is being pushed at these voters very hard. And we're also talking about counties where the old-fashioned news systems are breaking down. Newspapers are closing or laying off reporters or being bought up by hedge funds, which are squeezing all the money out of them and then dumping them. TV stations cover less and less political news and more just crime and traffic accidents. There's a phrase that's come about that is in reference to a lot of these towns, which is news desert, where people just aren't getting much news at all. And when we asked voters in focus group what they thought about media and where they got their information, one of the things that they said was that they didn't trust any national media sources because they, and they refer to them as corporate media. All these big corporate media folks, they have their own point of view, they're biased, they're doing it for profit, and they're not wrong. You know, there's a lot of stereotypes. They're actually really smart. They don't get as much media. They don't follow the day-to-day, -day, like who co-sponsored the infrastructure bill. But in terms of instinctively sort of understanding what's going on, when they were talking about the corporate media it's like, wow, these folks really know what they're talking about. And that's true of politics in general. They talk about politicians being bought off and they'll say, I know the Republicans are in bed with the big corporate CEOs and the billionaires, but it seems like the Democrats get bought off a lot, too. And so there's a level of discouragement. Their instinct is to want to trust the Democrats, but they just don't believe that they're fighting for them or that they even remember them. Again, what we were talking about at the beginning of the show, they feel abandoned.
you know, I want to especially look at the 1990s, right? President Clinton was in some ways a more conservative Democrat than we'd seen in those who preceded him. In particular, his advocacy of global trade fundamentally changing the American economy, ushering in an information economy and ushering out the manufacturing economy. How is it that core Democratic voters were the ones who bore the brunt of that transition? What did we do wrong? I once wrote a column called The Curse of the Macroeconomist, because a lot of people in the Clinton White House, and frankly, to some extent in the Obama White House, were macroeconomists, which meant they looked at the big picture. They looked at income and outflow, but from a global sense, not from a how is it going to affect the individual worker sense. The microeconomists at the time, and I remember these debates, were like, you know what, this is really going to screw a lot of people. A lot of individuals are going to get hurt by these trade deals and these policies. But the folks like, just to name a name, folks like Larry Summers, Bob Rubin, they thought that was okay because overall, in the end, balance will be better for everybody. But it sure never felt like that to those folks in Youngstown, Ohio. They don't care. Unfortunately, they don't care. You know, watching the news and stuff and hearing them say, you know, how sad it is that GM don't care for their employees. It's true. It's it's a business. We're numbers. It doesn't matter. All the bags and pleads for this community. It's not going to make a difference. They just got screwed. And so now it's this tendency, like, they tend to be anti-expert. Because the experts have been telling them for years that, oh, global trade is going to be so good for you, so good for you. In the long run, it'll be good for you. And people have just never seen that it was good for them. And they're right. And moving down the timeline, right, then in the late 90s and early 2000s, the GOP, which was led by Newt Gingrich and then George W. Bush and Karl Rove really dug into the culture war issues as a way to attract voters in these former factory towns, again, mainly using fear. We saw anti-marriage equality amendments and abortion laws, for example, used as a turnout issue in states like Ohio and West Virginia, and they were successful. So let's talk about that. And how are we at risk for that again coming up to 2024 in the election? Every report has its share of bad news and good news. One of the parts of good news in the report that we just released was when we tested the culture war argument versus the economic argument that the Democrats could make, that was more economically populist, that was talked about taxing billionaires, that talked about how all profitable corporations ought to pay some taxes, that talked about lowering your drug prices, talked about issues like that. Our economic argument beats their culture war argument handily. It's 50 to 41, which in a contested space like this is a very good margin. If it's straight up their economic argument about how Biden has failed, blah, 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 versus ours, it's essentially a tie. And so we've got some work to do there, and um, we've got to keep pushing back on their economic frame. But if it comes down to Ron DeSantis' culture war versus Joe Biden's infrastructure bill and insulin at $35, we win that fight. And so that's one of the interesting dynamics with these folks is that they hear some of the culture war stuff the Republicans are saying, but they think they've gone too far and that it's overreach. 
And like in one of the focus groups, actually more than one of the focus groups, people would be talking, they, they would hear the culture war argument about the people who were breeding people and blah, 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 right, in our schools. They would be like, our local teachers aren't like that. We like our teachers. They would react against the sort of extremism of the right-wing culture war message. So if the Republicans are going to be all culture war all the time, I think we can win that fight as long as we're making the economic argument. I don't think we can ignore, though, that in President Obama's second term, support for the Democrats bottomed out in every factory town, right? The swing went from Obama winning in these towns by 100,000 votes in 2008 to losing them by 700,000 votes in 2012. That's a big difference, and I don't think we can ignore that. Can you define populism for our listeners? I think that is a term that gets broadly misunderstood and which is manipulated by people like Trump who put on a type of performative populism when campaigning, but who really enact anti-populist policies. Let me first respond to the Obama thing. I think Obama and Hillary Clinton honestly spent too much time talking about how great the economy has been. And I think it really pissed off these working class voters. It didn't feel great to them. Their wages weren't going up. Their pensions weren't coming back. They didn't feel like the economy had been that good. And so when Trump was out there doing his right wing version of populism, it really struck a chord with a lot of these voters. The way I would define uh I think there is a right-wing version of populism. You talk about the elites being college professors, actresses, people like that, right? But the progressive form of populism is, okay, if big business is abusing you, we're going to take on those big businesses. If rich people aren't paying their taxes, we're going to tax them. If drug companies are charging you too much for your insulin, we're going to step in and say, no, we're going to lower their prices. That kind of populism to me is a populism that, A, makes sense politically, but also, B, is just the right thing to do. If you have too much market power, if you're a monopoly or a near monopoly, you shouldn't be abusing people, and government needs to step in and push back on that. And I think that is a good democratic message that will appeal to not just people in these towns, but I think more generally. The ability to shop for the best deal is fundamental to a free market economy. Yet for years, many people in apartment and office buildings have been stuck with only one option for internet. Service providers have unfairly locked out competitors by securing exclusivity agreements with landlords. Tenants are trapped into one choice for broadband, whether they are getting a fair deal or whether they're getting ripped off. Allowing big corporations to gatekeep the market is not healthy capitalism. So American family voters did some polling in factory towns. What did that polling reveal? As you can imagine, it's complicated. On the one hand, Biden is doing a little bit better in these counties than certainly than Hillary did or even than Biden did in 2020. That was a good sign. Another good sign was that voters in these counties still tend to be more on the progressive populist side as opposed to the right wing populist side. I mentioned the 50 to 41 number on the Democratic message versus the culture war message. But there are also clearly some challenges. Uh, The Democratic brand is a damaged brand. People think that Democrats are 
ineffective. They think Democrats don't care that much about people like them. And so we have work to do in these counties. We have to pay much more attention to these counties than we have been. We just need to do a better job and we need to start early. And the folks in these counties, I will tell you, when you play them ads in the focus groups, they'll be like, yeah, I like that ad, but I don't believe it because they've heard so many things. They're so cynical about politics, political parties. And so we have to start early and it has to be organizing and personal connection and not just talking down to them with TV ads or stuff from the top. Okay, so how do we do that? Let's say there's candidates for 2024 who are listening to this episode right now. What advice would you have for local and national candidates that are in races in these towns? One bit of advice is, as I said, get in there early, get in there right now, start showing up in these places that a lot of times politicians don't show up in anymore. So I think that's part of it. I think part of it is we need to rebuild a sense of community in these places, these voters are hungry for a connection. They've had the years of COVID isolation. They've had years of feeling like nobody's paying attention to them, whether it's through classic sort of community organizing, door knocking. I think we need to be doing more just events that bring people together. I like history and I'm a big fan of the old Chautauqua uh, style movements where you got people together to have fun to have maybe have some music, maybe have a comedian, maybe you have booths of healthcare providers that can tell people how best to get better healthcare, or you have other kinds of services provided. I also think we need people in the communities, whether at events or door to door, that are showing people how to get what's due them because of the laws that the Democrats just passed. How do you get that new factory job that's coming in the solar plant? How do you make sure that you're getting lower insulin prices or lower drug prices if you're on Medicare? How do you sign up for new benefits that are available to you because of some of the different legislation that's being passed? The biggest secret to our electoral and policy success we actually talked to people and built relationships. Every single day of our first campaign, I drove down dirt roads, knocked on doors, and talked to people who had said they'd never been contacted by a Democrat before. These dirt roads were a huge abandoned space for a new politics to emerge. I think the biggest lesson that I learned is the act of listening. And it sounds so simple, and I think it's a skill that I have learned throughout the 20,000 doors that we've knocked in the past two cycles. How do you get the new job built, you know, rebuilding the highways, right? You know, I, I like this phrase that someone mentioned to me recently, we got to meet people where they are, and we got to meet people everywhere they are. We have to get into the community and rebuild those ties, rebuild those bonds with people. One of the things that I think needs to be said here is that candidates just can't promise to do things that these voters want without following through, right? Our party really needs to govern in a way that addresses the voters' need. And I really think West Virginia is an example of how the Democratic Party blew it with similar voters in the mining industry. 
when much of our mining production went overseas or otherwise closed out in the state, we promised new economy in jobs, but never delivered on that promise. And it doesn't do a miner any good to be trained in computer coding if tech companies are all in California. So how do we hold the party accountable? How can we be sure that our party, the Democratic Party, keeps its promises to workers in factory towns? I think you you just hit the nail on the head. Part of what we need to do is not just pass laws, but implement them in a way that actually benefits working people and working people in places that normally don't see the benefits. So many times you pass a bill and then some either some administrator or maybe some local official isn't using it to actually benefit working people. And that's something that I think that the entire party needs to make a big push on and also the community organizations that care about these issues. I would be thrilled if local advocacy organizations, if local community organizations would spend so much time this year. How are we implementing the infrastructure bill, right? How are we implementing the Inflation Reduction Act, which is a nice title, but how is it benefiting real people in real communities and not just people at the, at the top? And that's got to be a real focus, I think, for anybody who cares about both these communities, but also the Democratic Party. I also have to ask, how can the party campaign arms best make sure that candidates who speak to these voters, who speak to these people, who speak to these concerns and these needs are the ones who are supported at a national level? How do we get the party to back the candidate who is speaking to these people directly, who has the better chance of winning? You raise a great question. And I think part of my mission in starting this whole project was to get Democrats focused on what we need to do to rebuild these ties to these communities. And part of that is, as you say, picking the right candidates. i give you an example, 2022 race, right, in Pennsylvania. John Fetterman so clearly had the back of these kinds of communities. He was the mayor of one of these small towns. He believed in it. His persona was all, all about it. And a lot of the Democratic establishment types, another candidate who they thought, well, he's more moderate, therefore he can win. I never expected that we were going to turn these red counties blue, but we did what we needed to do. And we had that conversation across every one of those counties. And tonight, that's why... I'll be the next U.S. Senator from Pennsylvania. This isn't about moderation versus some form of lefty whatever. John Fetterman was the real deal. People knew where he came from. They understood his values. And he did better in those counties than anyone would have imagined. I think that's a classic story. We need to not be scared of these kinds of candidates who are really focused on working class folks and getting them what they need, getting them their benefits. I think the Fetterman model is a great one. I want to talk about income inequality. Obviously, we are in an era of unprecedented income inequality. Two thirds of American wealth is concentrated in less than 700 households. How can we make sure that hoarded Wealth at the top of the wealth gap is actually purposefully distributed among the workers instead of just a few people. How do we win that messaging war? That is one of the foundational issues of our time. I mean, income inequality right now in America is worse than it was in the 1890s Gilded Age. 
It's just insane. And I think that part of what we've got to do is rebalance the power arrangements. People will say, why are you so big on antitrust? Why are you so big on breaking companies up? And the answer is power. If companies get too big, if certain people have so much money, it changes the power dynamics. And it means that workers get less. It means that communities get screwed. It means the counties I've been studying get screwed. And so we have to change the power dynamics so that unions are stronger, so that nonprofit groups that care about these issues are stronger, and also so that there's more competition in the marketplace so that Amazon doesn't get obscenely wealthy just based on they just own that market, right? We need to create a system where the market has some competition. So I think that's a big part of it. I think higher taxes is a big part of it. I think stopping uh, corporate abuse is a big part of it. I think all of these things go into it. And this is not going to be easy to solve because the power balance has been so skewed. People will sometimes ask me, well, what's the best campaign finance reform solution? And there's a lot of good things you can do. But to me, the number one thing is tax billionaires and multimillionaires more. Because if they have all that money, they're going to abuse the system no matter what the campaign finance laws are. We've lost that messaging, though. And that's the part that is so scary, right? When Bernie Sanders first started talking about taxing the mega wealthy, that's, you know, when the GOP started its messaging, even though we were right. You know, I feel like we've waited so long or didn't do anything quickly enough to get on the right side of that messaging. And now we're playing catch up. The good news is that those things are still very popular. Taxing billionaires is incredibly popular. Taxing profitable companies is incredibly popular. So the Republicans are great at distracting and they're great at twisting stuff. They're great at disinformation. They're good at all those dark arts. But the basic, the fundamental ideas that we're talking about are still incredibly popular with the American voters. Tell people where to find you and how to support the work that you're doing. Uh, thank you. Our organization is called American Family Voices, and the, the website is just AmericanFamilyVoices.org. And you can go there. You can check out the reports we've done. We've done three different reports on factory towns over the last year and a half. You can look at what we've done. You can look at the projects that we're working on. And if you can help us with a donation, we would love it. But if you live in one of these counties and you want us to come to your county, let us know that as well, because we want to be doing that. And finally, what gives you hope? You know, I'm actually a really hopeful person. I think that we're seeing it right now in Joe Biden. And I don't agree with Joe Biden on everything, but you know what? He gets that the Democratic Party should be the party of working people. He gets that old connection. That's what I learned when I was growing up, is that the Democrats are the party of working people. And he gets that we need to be that again. And I see other Democrats like Sherrod Brown, uh, Tammy Baldwin, folks like that, who just get it in their gut. And I'll tell you one quick story. We were doing a focus group in Youngstown. In every focus group, we asked, so is there anybody out there, is there any politician out there or anybody out there who's fighting for you? And usually what we get is just a chorus of cynical laughs. In Youngstown, we initially got the cynical laughs and then somebody said, well, you know, Sherrod Brown, he actually fights for us. And everybody in the room was like, oh yeah, Sherrod, he fights for us. So it's like, when there is a politician like that comes along, they get it, they understand it. I feel like I'm seeing a new crop of those kinds of folks coming up. And I'm just, I'm really excited by that. And 
and it does make me hopeful. So I'm going to continue to I'm going to continue to be hopeful. Mike, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thanks, Alyssa. I appreciate you so much. Because the world is changing, uh, it, it can be disorienting for people. You know, it's uh, people coming here who may look different, may act different, have different beliefs uh, from what was for them a safe community where everybody was on the same page, whether it's religion, farming practices, uh, the businesses we go to. I will tell you what, as Democrats, we blew it with our core voters when it came to how we rolled out free trade in this country. Yes, international trade was critical as a tool for democracy and for an evolving global economy, but we never truly took care of those whose lives were uprooted by the vast structural changes that a global economy dictated. And until we fix that mistake, until we bring the jobs of the global economy to the people who built the manufacturing economy, we will never win those voters back. We saw a glimpse of the possibilities of this when, because of President Biden's strong support for unions and his own blue-collar sensibilities, Democrats were able to build a wall against the false mega populism in 2020 and take the White House. But without following through on the promise of that election and the faith of those voters, we're in real jeopardy in the years to come. There's room in this country for information economy workers and factory towns. The core values of the Democratic Party are the values of Americanism. But until we govern like it, We'll have nothing but room because factory town voters will not be under our tent. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate review and spread the word. Sorry, not sorry.